I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, so we're continuing with our class on the Shema, a central prayer in Judaism, a prayer that we say every morning and every night. And of course, um, before we die, it's supposed to be the last words on our lips, and it's our affirmation of Hashem's oneness, our declaration, our mission statement. And I just wanted to mention something as we go forward into the second paragraph of Shema, something that came up in this week's Parsha that I read about through Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zatzal's uh, books on the Chumash. So he talked about the idea that in the, in the Parsha this week, Kisisa, we are called numerous times, Am Kesheh Oref, of stiff-necked people right? We are a stubborn people. We are a stiff-necked people. And interestingly, in the Chumash, in the Parsha, it looks like Hashem basically wants to get rid of us and is not willing to forgive us after the Chet Egel, after we have, as we all know, the famous scene in the movie, The Ten Commandments, right? Moshe comes down and everybody's dancing around this golden calf and the Luchos are broken by Moshe. And God basically says, that's it. I want to just get rid of these people and start over again. But actually what happens as we go through the Parsha is it turns out that Hashem, so to speak, decides to stay with us, not in spite of the fact that we're a stiff-necked people, but because we are a stiff-necked people. And I just want to read you something out of the... uh, Kumash that he um, called uh, Covenant and Conversation. He, um, he, um, Rabbi Sachs writes um, a quote by this Rabbi Yitzchak Nissenbaum, who lived and died in the Warsaw Ghetto, which adds a lot of poignancy to his words. And what he says is this argument that Moshe made to God about staying with the Jewish people despite their stiff-neckedness or actually because of their stubbornness goes like this, he says. Almighty God, look upon this people with favor because what is now their greatest vice will one day be their most heroic virtue. They are indeed an obstinate people. When they have everything to thank you for, they complain. Mere weeks after hearing your voice, they make a golden calf. But just as now they are stiff-necked in their disobedience, so one day they will be equally stiff-necked in their loyalty. Nations will call on them to assimilate, but they will refuse. Mightier religions will urge them to convert, but they will resist. They will suffer humiliation, persecution, even torture and death because of the name they bear and the faith they profess. But they will stay true to the covenant their ancestors made with you. They will go to their death saying, Anima Amin, or I might add, Shema Yisroel, 
I believe. This is a people awesome in its obstinacy. And though now it is their failing, there will be times far into the future when it will be their noblest strength. So this is by a Rabbi Yitzhak Nissenbaum who lived and died in the Warsaw Ghetto. Just as we're coming up to Purim, Rabbi Sachs ends this essay on the Parsha by saying, it's not by accident that the main narrative of the book of, the, of Esther begins with the words, and Mordechai would not bow down. His refusal to bow down to Haman sets the story in motion because Mordechai too is obstinate. For there is one thing that is hard to do if you have a stiff neck, namely bow down. At times, Jews found it hard to bow down to God, but they were certainly never willing to bow down to anything less. That's why alone of all the many peoples who have entered the arena of history, Jews, even in exile, dispersed and everywhere a minority, neither assimilated to the dominant culture nor converted to the majority faith. Forgive them because they are a stiff-necked people, says Moshe, because the time will come when that stubbornness will be not a tragic failing, but a noble and defiant loyalty. And so this is a way of viewing the Amkashe Orif, the stiff-necked people, what were called the stubborn people, in the positive light that Moshe was able to convince Hashem to stay with us because we would prove our loyalty throughout our difficult history. Um, I wanted to just make a, a quick correction. Last week, I think I said that Onkelos was a commentator on the Gemara, but actually Onkelos is found in every Chumash in the five books of the Torah. He translated the Chumash into Aramaic, which was the language that was being spoken at that time while the Jews lived under the Roman Empire. So that's what he did. And he was a famous convert. We told the story last week about how he converted many to Judaism. Some say attributed to him. Some say it's not. But, um, you know, with the story of the mezuzah and um, that he remained a true convert to Judaism. Okay, so we talked about the first paragraph being our accepting individually, each one of us, our mission to be a billboard to carry a placard stating our um, belief in God, in his oneness, and to live our lives as an example of those who serve him. And in the second paragraph, we're told that we should pause before the first and the second paragraph. The second paragraph continues, and it's a little bit different. It has some differences and similarities, which we're going to pay attention to. And one of the main things is that it begins addressing the Jewish people in the plural. The beginning of, um, of the second paragraph, and I mean, we could spend a year on the Shema, so I just want to say that if I don't get to every single word and every single layer of meaning in the Shema, it's not because it doesn't exist. It's just because I don't want to go too deeply because I want to move the class along. But even if we go back to the beginning of the second paragraph with the and it will come to pass that if you continuously listen to my commandments, and of course the question is, 
we have this double lashon of shamoa tishma'u. And of course, whenever there's a double lashon, in other words, it says the same thing twice, it's for emphasis. But the other idea here is that if you will listen, meaning if you will, if you will begin to do the mitzvot, your hearing will become deeper and more profound. Because once a person begins to do the mitzvot, they begin to understand more deeply the incredible, uh, not only depth, but what we gain from the mitzvot. I remember there was a famous book uh, called The Voice of Sarah. I think the author was a woman named Tamar Frankiel, F-R-A-N-K-I-E-L. She was a devout feminist, and I think she was a professor of feminist studies in a university. And in her introduction to her book, she talks about her um, distrust of Judaism as a patriarchal religion. But for one reason or another, she got to the point where even though she wasn't quite sure about uh, whether or not she believed, she started doing the mitzvot. And she explains that as she began to do the mitzvot, what happened is she began to understand more deeply how everything works together and how the system is really profound and, you know, beyond anything that a human being could come up with. So this is the idea here at the beginning of the Shema, that if you will hear, if you will hear and you will start to do my mitzvahs, right? Then the mitzvahs will naturally lead to an ahava, ahava es Hashem, right? Asher anochi mitzvah eschem ayom, that I'm commanding you today. And we spoke about the idea of today, that Judaism is not some antiquated religion where we celebrate what happened in past history. And it has no relevance to our lives today, but rather it's alive. You know, it's a living God, if you like, you know, that is still involved in history, that is involved in each one of our lives, that wants us to connect to him and gave us this instruction booklet to help us to be able to do this. And naturally doing the mitzvot. Um, well, before we even do the mitzvot, it says that limud Torah is the most important thing because if you will listen also implies if you will learn my Torah, right? Then you'll come to do the mitzvot and then there'll be a natural love of Hashem because that connection that a person develops through mitzvot brings one to love Hashem your God. And then we have the words that are unique to the second paragraph. Ule uh, Abdo. And you'll serve him, with all your hearts. So the word here, la'avdo, is referring to avodat um, shebalev. It's referring to tefillah. It's referring to uh, a mitzvah that we know we say, hashivenu avinu l'torah techa v'dabkenu v'mitzvotecha v'chari. What is it? I minded, I didn't have a coffee today. Here it is. The Karvenu Malkenu La Right? So one way that we return to Hashem is through Torah learning. And we cleave to him, the Karvenu Malkenu La and bring us close, our king, to your avoda. And here we're talking to Tefillah. So this is the same thing that it's referring to in the Shema. That Avdo, 
means that um, you'll come to love Hashem through tefillah, through connecting to him, to him through tefillah. And with all of your soul. Okay, I just want to stop here and just go back to my regular notes. And so I don't make sure that I don't miss anything. So last week we said that one of the things that's missing from the second paragraph, if it, do, it doesn't tell us, it tells us to love Hashem with our hearts and with our souls, but it omits the idea of loving Hashem with our money. And we said the reason for this is because this is being given and spoken to in the plural and people who are willing to live a less materialistic life and totally pursue spirituality are considered few and far between. It's not for everybody. You know, we'd say it's not for the faint of heart. But it's only for the few and far between, like somebody like a Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who of course we know revealed the Zohar to the world, but who lived in a cave and existed on carobs and a stream of water. And this is sort of like the penultimate example of somebody who totally had nothing to do or needed nothing to do with the spirit, with the physical world, except that it should just sustain him so that he can be able to learn Torah. Okay, so we say rare is the Jew who will give up material prosperity for the study of Torah. And the Rambam even says that it's normally forbidden for a Jew to learn Torah and allow others to support him. Yet someone who's totally immersed as a way of life may do this. Someone who has total dedication to Hashem. Okay. So one of the other, um, second, let's go in order here. Okay, so in the very first sentence, it says, if you will listen to my words. So what we see here in the second paragraph, if God is, God is saying that, Keeping my mitzvot has a lot to do with whether or not things will be good for you in terms of material prosperity and in terms of the land, the, 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 um, the land of Israel. What we learn in the second paragraph is that mitzvah observance and the concept of reward and punishment is directly related. And also that whether or not we get to keep Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, has always been dependent on our moral behavior while in the land. Because it's like the land of Israel is compared to being in Hashem's backyard, right? And you have to behave on a higher level in the land of Israel than anywhere else. Otherwise, we know the number of prophets that told the Jewish people that God says, if you do not, do not keep my mitzvot in the land, I will vomit you out. I will spew you out. The land will not be able to contain you. And we've seen this over and over again through history, but we're going to talk more about this. But just to go into this next section, God says that if you keep my mitzvot, I, I will give you certain promises. I will provide rain for your land in its proper time, the early and the late rains. And of course, everything that this is referring to is about talking about the land of Israel. 
And we know that the land of Israel is dependent on rain, and it always has been. And I want to read to you from um, Lisa Aiken's book, a beautiful book called The Hidden Beauty of the Shema, very readable book for anybody who's interested in it. And she says, the Torah contrasts the land of Israel with the land of Egypt. Before it presents the second section of the Shema, the land that you are coming into to inherit is not like the land of Egypt that you left, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot like a verdant garden. The land that you are crossing over to possess is a land of hills and valleys. It drinks water from heavenly rain. The land of Israel is a land that God is constantly concerned about, and the eyes of Hashem are constantly upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Basically, it's a land where if you're not connected to Hashem, you cannot live there, right? In, the, in Egypt, because it was such a rich land and it had the Nile River spilling over into it, the Egyptians were actually cursed by their bountiful circumstances because they could not connect to God because they believed that nature took care of them. But Jews who could not make crops grow merely by following the laws of nature realized that they were completely dependent on Hashem. When there was a shortage of rain, Jews had to address the relationship with God. It's interesting to think that it says that people often think that the most blessed situation is to have everything they want without challenge or struggle. Actually, we're cursed when our life circumstances don't encourage us to come closer to God. When we prefer to rely on our own efforts to ensure success and make it on our own, which allows us to live in a godless world. And of course, the idea comes at the very beginning of the Chumash with the snake. The snake was punished in a worse way than Adam and Chava were, because we're told that the snake's punishment was that he would crawl now on the ground, and his food, he would eat the dust of the earth, and his food would be available everywhere he went. And this was considered the worst punishment, because the snake would never lack anything. His food would always be available. And this in Judaism is considered a curse because it's when we lack and when we go through struggles and challenges and when we realize that our reliance has to be totally on Hashem, that we are forced to create a relationship with him. Interestingly, we'll see that later on that both scarcity and prosperity is a curse considered to be an Eretz Yisrael. The best is when you have what you need, neither too little or too much, because both situations can make you distance yourself from Hashem, right? If you have too much, you're always running after more. If you have too little, of course, it's a test of not stealing or trying to get your needs met in negative ways. But having exactly what is good for you in terms of the land itself, this is considered the ultimate blessing in terms of Eretz Yisrael. Okay, so as we continue in the Shema, he says that I'm going to give you your rains in their season. And when it talks about their season, 
it actually talks about certain times of the year. And, you know, we even have an idea that when it rains on Shabbos, this is a good time for it to rain because that's when Jewish people are in their home and they're not going to get wet. I don't know about the men who are going out to shul. Hopefully it starts right after they get back, right? But Rashi says that that's one of the bi'ito, one of the times that it is good to rain. Okay, just to go back to the idea, I'm sorry, before we end with it, because there's so much else that I wrote here about um, serving Hashem with uh, meaning tefillah. So tefillah is a mitzvah. And Rabbi Diskin said that if a servant would ask his master for something, the servant is thankful if the master grants his wish. The master would never reward the servant just for asking. But that's what Hashem does with us. He not only responds to our prayer, but we're rewarded just for the fact of praying. Because when we pray, we're creating that connection. Going back to the idea of we're recognizing that on our own, without Hashem's help, we're helpless. That we can only do so much. That we can only control very, very little. And so just by virtue of putting our dependence on Hashem, whether or not he responds to our prayers in the way that we want, every time we turn to Hashem, we are rewarded with a mitzvah. It is a mitzvah to daven, to connect to Hashem. Of course, we know another word for tefillah, right? Or the, the root of the word, the infinite, infinitive of the word is lehit palel, which means to judge and examine oneself. That one of the ideas of tefillah is also that when we stand in prayer, it's also an opportunity for us to go inward and ask ourselves why we're asking for what we're asking. What we'll do with whatever it is that we want Hashem to give us. Why we deserve it why it would be good for us. And so part of tefillah is introspection and self-examination. It's something lehit paleo, that you do to yourself, literally means to judge oneself. So at the same time that you're connecting to your creator, you're connecting to that piece of the creator that is within you, that piece of Hashem, right? One great Hasidic rabbi said that when you engage in tefillah, it's just the God inside of you speaking to the God outside of you. Another, of course, reason for tefillah is for us to gain clarity about, again, our weakness and how dependent we need to be on Hashem. And the more we recognize that dependence, the more Hashem is able to help us and to give us. The Vilna Gaon said the essence of prayer and sacrifice are the same. To subdue our insufferable arrogance and towering pride. So that is another byproduct of tefillah as we recognize that we are very small and that Hashem is very big and that the fact that he listens to us and he wants that connection with us is in itself an amazing opportunity that we should take advantage of, and it's a mitzvah. 
Rav Mendel of Kotsk said, told a story about a man who came and complained to him and said to him, I can't daven because I have he headaches. And Mendel, Rav Mendel of Kotsk responded to him, what does the head have to do with davening? Davening should be with the heart, right? It's called avodat shebalev. Over and over again, Hashem says to us in the Torah, and the Nevi'im echo this, I don't want your lip service. I don't need your sacrifices. I want your heart. And I want a heart of flesh. I don't want a heart of stone. I want a heart that is pulsating with need. And of course, tears, when we cry, when we cry during prayer, we know that we've reached a level of connection because we say that no tear is ever lost, that Hashem saves every tear. And he's actually filling up a cup with all of the tears of the Jewish people. And there's an image that one day, the day that that cup overflows is the day that Mashiach will come. So every single tear is counted and Hashem is with us in our pain and he wants to give us what we need, what we want, of course, only caveat if it's good for us. And sometimes what we think is good for us is not. And sometimes what we think may not be good for us is exactly what our soul needs. Okay. So this idea of the fact that Hashem's going to give us rain is connected to the idea of tefillah. In other words, we're going to reap God's blessing. Rashi says, if we do our part to serve Hashem, he'll do our part to help us live. So God's going to give us our rains in their season, Yoreh Umakosh. You're going to be able to gather in your grain and your wine. Sorry, Yoreh Umakosh. In its proper time, the early and late rains, sorry, the early and late rains is what that means. And you will gather in your grain your wine and your oil. And it's interesting that this switches back to the singular. And it could be because not everybody's a farmer, although they did live a very agrarian life in, in the land of Israel. And um, also that each person's success, Hashem is addressing each person will be successful based on his mitzvah observance, collecting the grain and the wine and the oil. I'll give grass in your field, leave him techa and to your animals, and you will eat and be satisfied. So again, God is saying that dependent on your mitzvah performance, I'll take care of your material needs so that you'll be able to do the mitzvah. So the physical and material rewards, again, are not a reward in themselves. I'll make you rich, life will be good but rather they're a means, as we've spoken about in so many classes, to be able to fulfill our mission in this world, which is to be able to live a spiritual life and serve God with all of our hearts and all of our souls. And God's going to make that easy for us. The reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah, right? The reward of a mitzvah is the ability one good deed leads to another. 
is the ability to do another mitzvah. Because as we're going to read and we're going to see, mitzvah observance in this world is something we can only do while we're in this world. And there is no reward for a mitzvah in this world. There's no pleasure in this world that we could get that could ever equal even the a mitzvah that's done even without thinking. We'll read from that soon, but I just want to finish with this next idea, which is why is it that it says that I'm going to give grass in your field to your animals? And then it says, and you will eat and be satisfied. So we here are learning a halacha that you're supposed to feed your animals before you feed yourself. In Brachas 40, it says a person may not eat until they first provide food for their animals. And there's many stories of great rabbis. There's a story of the Nitziv, of Velazhin, who it was Rosh Hashanah afternoon. And before he was sitting down to eat his suda, he asked, did anybody feed the chickens? <laughs> and it seemed that nobody had. So he went out to feed the chickens himself and the door to the coop was locked. And he couldn't find the key. And he asked a Gentile nearby if he could break the lock. And only after feeding the chickens did he sit down to eat. And there are many stories about great people. Another person that Rav Schwab was once visiting, Rav Breuer. And he said before they sat down to eat, Rav Breuer made sure to feed his bird. He had a pet bird. And there's even a halacha that if you've already made a bracha on your food that you were sitting down to and you forgot to feed your animal first, you're allowed to interrupt, which usually you're not allowed to interrupt between making a blessing and eating the food, but it's not considered an interruption if in between you realize you forgot to feed your dog or your cat or your budgie. Now, I always say, how could a religion that is so concerned with feeding our budgie bird before ourselves, be cruel to animals, as we know in Europe and other places. Every so often, anti-Semitism rears its ugly head by saying that kashrut, the laws of kashrut are cruel, right? And the shafting of animals is cruel. Now, the same religion that says you can't eat until you feed your budgie bird, okay, is not going to be cruel to animals. If anything, we believe that shafting an animal in the way that we do is the most kindest and compassionate way to kill an animal and even creates the ability for the one who's shafting, right, to retain his compassion and his ability to not become cruel as he is, you know, spending his livelihood shafting which would be easy to become hard and colden, even if you're just killing animals and not human beings. So this same religion that worries about feeding your animals before anything else, this is uh, goes flies in the face of people who like to try and say that shefting is cruel and that Jews don't know anything about being compassionate to animals. So then we say that and you will eat and you will be satisfied. 
And of course, the idea is that there's going to be a blessing in your food. It's a spiritual blessing. In other words, Rashi says you'll eat a little bit and you will be satisfied. It's like, you know, when you eat flaxseed and chia seeds and all those things and they sort of bloat you and they're supposed to, so to speak, make you less hungry. We're not talking about physically. We're talking about spiritually. First of all, eating the produce of Eretz Yisrael is considered a spiritual experience. Eating the cucumbers and tomatoes when you're visiting Israel is spiritually healthy for the body in a way that the cucumbers and tomatoes from California will never be. We're also eating spiritual nutrients. And so there's a blessing in the food. But the idea is, is that we know you can eat and eat and eat. And eating, of course, doesn't only mean food. It means materialism in general and never feel satisfied. But the bracha here is that when you're leading a spiritual life and you're focused on your goal, which is that everything I need, my very food to be able to live, right? Without food, how long can we survive? Without food and water, how many days can a person survive? So when we recognize that all of this is in order to help us be able to live and do the mitzvot, then there's a blessing in our what we eat. There's a blessing in what we have. Okay, the achalta v'sabata. Okay, so now we come to the warnings. The warnings. What does God tell us now? He says, be careful. Be careful. Be careful that your heart doesn't get seduced. Good word for the heart, right? The place of passion and emotion where it's so easy to become seduced. And you turn away. You turn away from God. You turn away to others. And you start to worship other gods. So God is saying, and we know that God says, I'm a jealous God, right? And of course, all of these anthropomorphisms, God's anger, God's jealousy, they're only used so that we can relate to God in some way. But we don't really understand what these terms mean. But we know that we have this marriage relationship with God, which I've spoken of. God is the Chatan. The Jewish people are the Kala. We got married at Mount Sinai. The chuppah was there. The ring was the Torah. And in this covenant that we made, this marriage that was made between God and the Jewish people, it's a marriage that we're told can never end in divorce. But the prophets and the Torah itself worries, Moshe worries in his last, you know, Devarim, his swan song to the Jewish people. He worries that in the future, you'll go after other romantic relationships. You will become adulterous. You'll serve other gods. Now, when we talk about gods, we don't necessarily mean other religions. Or, but idols can be idols of where we put our dependence. 
right? What we put our belief in, whether it's technology, whether it's science, the scientists say, the scientists say, which of course this pandemic and the coronavirus has weakened for some people, their belief in the scientists, right? Or the money that we have, we put our trust in our money, we put our trust in our protexia, the people that we know, our status. All of these things are considered Elohim Achirim, other gods. You're going to, it says, be careful. And you'll bow down to them, right? You'll make them your focal point. You'll make them what you worship. And I always quote Bob Dylan, even though, you know, he's not necessarily, he's a pretty lapsed Jew, but he did have, he does have uh, grandchildren, by the way, who are from. We met somebody who uh, who was a grandparent in the same school uh, that Bob Dylan is a grandparent in. I think it's called Eula in California. And he said that they met Bob, a.k.a. Zimmerman, at a graduation ceremony because his grandsons were graduating this yeshiva high school together with theirs. So amazingly, yeah, he did have some uh, nachas, as we say, real Yiddish nachas. But he, when he was going through his Christian period, he wrote a song saying, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? It could be the devil or it could be the Lord, but you're going to worship something. So the Shema is telling us, be careful, be careful. And Rabbi Schwab in his book, which I don't want to go into too much because it's pretty depressing, but he says that you can look like a religious Jew. You can be doing all the mitzvot. You can be shuffling up a storm, but you can still be worshiping a different God than the God of Judaism. Because one of the prerequisites to making sure that you're worshiping the God of Judaism is the study of Torah. And so when a person leaves or isn't grasping and holding on to Limud Torah, then everything becomes almost like a strange God it becomes different than what it should be. And even if it's not apparent, that is what happens, he says, Rabbi Schwab says in his book on prayer. And what's going to happen if you do this? It says, the chara af Hashem bachem. Hashem is going to get angry at you. Ba'atzar et Hashemayim. He will restrain the heaven. So there will be no rain. And the ground will not yield its produce. So there's a direct connection, again, between nature, God's control over nature, and that our mitzvah observance affects, yes, global warming. Right? It affects, Judaism is the heart of the world. I'm sorry, Jerusalem, Israel is the heart of the world. It's where all of the blood for the rest of the world is pumped from. If that heart is not healthy, then the entire world suffers. If the heart is healthy, then everything works in perfect harmony and to its greatest potential. So God is saying, if 
You're not keeping my mitzvot on the land. Nature itself will turn against you. It will respond because nature is also a living and breathing entity, right? We know that if we talk to our plants and we say, good morning, plants, you're so beautiful. We love you. And they've done studies where if you say nasty things to your plant, it'll wither up and die, right? So call the Chomer. The Shema is telling us when you behave the way you're supposed to behave in this holy land and you live as a spiritual people, everything around you, you'll gather your wine and your, and your oil and your grain and the rains will come in the right place at the right time, in the right heaviness or lightness. At times, even when it doesn't disturb you, like on Friday nights when you're in your homes, Everything will work in synchronicity and harmony. And it's all based on you and your actions. What you do down here sends up. We basically act and Hashem responds to us. That's how powerful we are. And then Hashem sends down basically what we've sent up. When we're doing mitzvot and we're keeping our self in line and we're facing God, then the channels between us and God are open. I remember somebody once explained in the early days about kashrut in a way that I could understand. You know, kashrut is very difficult, especially if you didn't grow up keeping kashrut properly. And it's, you know, it's like a pain and why can't I eat other things? And anyways, pigs aren't dirty anymore and nobody gets trichinosis. And there's so many rational lies that Jews can tell themselves for why it's okay to eat fish in a tray uh, restaurant, even though they're using the same stuff that they use for everything else there. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The point is, is it's very difficult to start keeping kosher. And the only explanation that helped me when I was at the crossroads in life in that area was when somebody said, you know, when you eat non-kosher food, it's like there's this pipe that is going from you to Hashem. And when a Jew eats food that's forbidden, of course, it's a hope, right? It's one of those mitzvot that we say we can't understand. It's like not wearing linen and wool together. We might try to find reasons for it. Well, it's healthier, you know, because uh, our meat is cleaner and, you know, it's not good to eat meat. We can find all, but the truth is, as God says, it's a hope. It's a diet for Jews. You could try to find good things about it, but it's just the way I want you to eat. The point is, is spiritually speaking, it's like there's this, there's this pipe that's connected from every Jew to God. And when we eat things that we shouldn't, that are considered tame, that are considered spiritually impure, they might be so clean, but we're just not allowed to eat it, right? What we're doing is we're stuffing up the pipe between ourselves and God so that even if he's trying to have a relationship with us, it's like they're static. His ability to reach us his messages can't get through this pipe that's stuffed up that we've stuffed up and we know that one of the definitions or the greatest definition of god is god as giver all he wants to do is give 
Olam Chesed Yibane. He created the world in order to give, right? And so he wants to give, but we stuff up the pipes and it doesn't have to be kashrut, it can be anything, right? And so his ability, that flow, that bracha, that mazal, that, that flow of blessing, of good that, that God wants, it's almost like we cause him pain because we don't allow him to give to us. You know, have you ever had somebody who, I don't know, recently, you know, you go to somebody's house and you bring them lots of gifts, maybe you bring them food, and as you're leaving, they're packing up all the food that you brought them and saying, here, take it home with you, right? And it's like not a good feeling because it's like, I don't care if you don't like it, just throw it out, but don't give it back to me because I made this with love. I want to give this to you. I brought it all the way here. You know, it's not gracious, right? To do such a thing, even though sometimes we say, but I'm not going to eat it. Maybe you're going to eat it. And, and, you know, they say, no, we don't want to eat it. We want you to eat it. Anyway, maybe it's a good uh, parable. Maybe it's not. But the point is, is that I'm saying this is a, an idea of God wanting to give us and us not allowing him to give to us in the way that he wants. And it hurts him. You know, a parent wants to do so much for their child, but their child over and over again disappoints them or doesn't behave properly in this relationship. And it pains the parent to say, I can't give it to you because I just can't. Because you're not able to receive it in the way that things are right now. Right? So this is just the idea there that I just wanted to, I hope that was helpful because it was helpful for me in the days when I really, you know, certain mitzvot that we all find hard. It's about keeping the pipe open and clear so that Hashem can actually, you know, talk and we can hear and we can recognize that everything that happens in our lives is Hashem speaking to us. The good, the wonderful, the constant blessings that we have. And of course, the times when things are more difficult, the pipe will be clearer. Okay, so let's go on. So what's going to happen after you turn to other gods and you turn away and you indulge yourselves in adulterous relationships or you just forget me? The next thing that's going to happen is you will swiftly be banished from the goodly land which Hashem gives you. And it's interesting that notain is written in the present, right? It should say that you're going to go off the land that Hashem gave you. But the fact that it's written in the present gives you, it's showing hope for us, right? God's saying, I'm constantly giving it to you. It's about you, whether or not you're going to merit it based on your performance, based on your ability to live a holy life. But I'm giving it to you. It wasn't that I gave it to you and now, sorry, game over. You always have the ability to return to this land. And I'm constantly giving it to you, hoping that you'll be able to 
rise to the challenge, right? Hirsch says you'll lose the good land that Hashem gave you. Why? Because, right, you go astray. And Rabbi uh, Shimshon Rafal Hirsch says the blossoming of your land is dependent on your moral blossoming. The same way the earth is affected by the heavens above, the land is affected by your moral performance in the world. I just want to read from, um, from uh, Lisa Aiken again to bring us up to today. She says, the Vilna Gaon told his children to be extraordinarily careful about how they performed mitzvot in the Holy Land. He termed Israel the courtyard of the king. A Jew who acts improperly there makes a mess in the king's courtyard. Obviously, many people have the wrong attitude about Israel. The Almighty did not give us the land as an eternal inheritance so that we would prize its discotheques, club meds, bars, rock concerts, and soccer stars. Many Israelis think that as long as they live in Israel, they don't need to observe the Torah. And they claim that the mitzvah of inhabiting the land is in lieu of observing all other mitzvah. Nothing could be further from the truth. The land's holiness requires our impeccable performance of mitzvot so that we can live in harmony with it. We must even eat produce and harvest our crops in Israel with the consciousness of God. As long as we do that, the Shema promises that the land of Israel will always provide for our material as well as our spiritual needs. We know that God will take away our land. He did this when we were exiled by the Babylonians and by the Romans. Israel only stays in our hands if we use it to come closer to God. The Torah and history both teach us that our right to the land of Israel will be contested or lost altogether if we don't behave as if the land is a tool for spiritual growth. There's a medrash that says that the Jewish people's spiritual merits was what guaranteed them winning wars, fought to protect the land of Israel. You know, I don't know if I mentioned this story. I, I think I, we were at Shari Shemayim when somebody told me the story. There was an Israeli who belonged to Shari Shemayim, a former Israeli. And he told the story that he was in one of the wars and an explosion took place right next to where he was. And he screamed out the Shema Yisrael. And he was not religious at all in those days. And one of his religious comrades there said, what happened to you? And he said, I don't know, but embedded in the heart and the depths of every Jewish kishka is the Shema Yisrael and the recognition that, you know, that is who we worship, Hashem Echad. Okay, so it says, Right, that we, our, our ability to keep Eretz Yisrael is dependent on our... Um, behavior so one of the challenges always is material prosperity often makes us forget God and 
we know that one of the main things that happens, right? We talked about rain, that when there's a famine in the land of Israel, that's how Megillus Rus begins. It's a sign that God is displeased with the Jewish people and the way that they're behaving. Rainfall is an act of divine, direct divine providence. Rain is one of the three keys which God has retained for, its own, for his own use. It's not handed to the angels or to the mechanical laws of nature. There's always a famine, and then if we don't do tshuva, then comes exile, as we know from, um, from Megillus Rus and other places. Also, just back to material prosperity, when we say, Hishamru lachem, be careful, we're talking about material prosperity because it's the greatest challenge to religious devotion. Over and over again in the Torah, we have this idea, Yeshurun waxed fat and kicked. When we get too satisfied, we forget Hashem and we forget our obligations. Right? But the idea is, okay, no, the idea is here too, is that we should know, is that even after we're kicked out of the land of land and exiled, we continue to do the mitzvahs. We continue to do the mitzvahs, even though mitzvahs are really best done in the land of Israel. There's many machlokuses about whether living in Israel is considered a mitzvah in itself. I think the Rambam says that it is. It's one of the 613. But there are others who say not. Okay, whether it's a mitzvah or not, it's definitely a good thing to do and to want to do. And God willing, we'll all get there. But um, the idea is, is that even when you're not in the land, don't think that you should stop doing the mitzvot because Rashi says they are markers for you. The mitzvot keep you different. So they won't be new to you when the day comes that you return to the land. So that's why Jews continue to keep the mitzvot in Galut, in the diaspora, so that we're well-practiced and that when we come back to the land, we won't forget them. Okay? Um, okay, there was one thing I wanted to show you today. If you just give me a minute, I wanted to uh, share screen with you and just talk about the idea that the reward for a mitzvah in this world is not something, there are, certain, there are certain rewards that we do get in this world for doing mitzvot, but we know that the principal reward for mitzvot is in the next world. And so in the Shema, where it says, if you do my mitzvot, then this will happen and that will happen and all these good things will happen. And it looks like we're getting all these material rewards. We need to know again that the material sustenance is theirs in order for us to be able to do the mitzvah. They are not the reward in itself. They're just a means towards being able to do more mitzvah as many as we possibly can. Also, I just want to quote uh, Lisa Aiken again, who says that a person does a disservice to their children when they teach them that God rewards all the mitzvah that they do, but neglects to also teach that God punishes. In other words, that God is also a judge and that there is reward and punishment. It's one of the 13 um, 
um, beliefs that the Rambam says to believe, to be a believing Jew is to believe in both reward and punishment. But what I want to focus on right now is the idea that there's no such thing as a reward for a mitzvah in this world. So let me just go to this and I hope you'll beg my indulgence to um, one sec. Let's see if I know how to do it. Share. Okay. So this is from Rob Dessler. And we'll just end with this because it's something to take with you into the week and to think about. There is a well-known saying of our sages, which states, there is no reward for a mitzvah in this world. This is generally understood to mean that a person is not given the reward for his mitzvah in this world. It is reserved for him in the world to come. But in fact, the matter goes much deeper than that. This, this statement of our rabbis will well repay careful study. Our rabbis have said one hour of satisfaction in the world to come is better than all the life of this world. This is a saying that requires consideration if we're to understand its full significance. What is meant by one hour of satisfaction? And what is all the life of this world? So we'll just skip a little bit. We all know that life is a mixed blessing, but during the course of a lifetime, everyone has some measure of joy and happiness. Let us collect these scattered hours and minutes of pleasure and enjoyment of a whole lifetime and concentrate them all into one minute. So ladies, take every moment in your life where you felt joy and happiness, right? If you have children, your children's births, your marriage day, you know, all the other things and concentrate every joy that you've ever had into one moment. We shall have an extremely intense experience of joy. Now let us collect all the hours of pleasure experienced by all a person's friends and acquaintances throughout all their lifetimes and imagine that we can concentrate them all into that same minute of that one person's life. So now you're adding everybody else's happy and wonderful joys into that one moment. The intensity of such an experience must surely be beyond description. But let us go further and concentrate into that same minute, all the happiness and joy experienced by all the people in that city throughout all their lifetimes. And more still, let us add all the happiness of all the people in all the cities of that country and of every country, that is, all that is pleasant and delightful in the whole world during an entire generation. Let us add it all up, concentrate it all into one minute and give it to one person. But this would still not be all the life of this world. All the life of this world is arrived at only if we add together all the happiness experienced by all generations of men from the beginning of creation until the end of time. If we were to take all this, all the good things of this world without any exception whatsoever, and give it all to one person at one time, then we should have achieved a degree of worldly happiness, which is surely impossible to exceed. And nevertheless, satisfaction into the in the world to come exceeds it. My revered father-in-law said that this moment that we just described 
of all the generations of men, all the people in the world, putting together all their joy into this one minute that you get to experience in this world, the greatest pleasures all combined are likened to something like the satisfaction derived by a poor man who passes by the kitchen of a great house where a banquet is being prepared. You pass by Hermes Bakery, okay? Or somebody's Arlene's home at Pesach time and the windows are open and the waft of the food is go go going out to the streets of Clanton Park. And you're able to enjoy the aroma. So in the world to come, a person who does not mere participation in the actual spiritual delights of that world, but who is allowed as it were to pass by on the outside and to enjoy the aroma of the world to come. That's what the Mishnah refers to as satisfaction in the world to come. In other words, that is to say some slight satisfaction in that world, though not delight the delight of that world itself. This represents this aroma, the smallest possible reward allocated for the smallest mitzvah imaginable. For every mitzvah has some reward in the world to come. And it is this minimal satisfaction in the spiritual world, which the rabbis say cannot be equaled by all the accumulated joys and pleasures of this world from its beginning to its end. Again, just to explain, just the minimal pleasure in the next world, smelling the aroma would be like smelling the aroma in this world of some is still greater, right? Than all of the joys of this world. It should now be perfectly clear why there can be no reward for a mitzvah in this world. The reason is simply that there is no mitzvah, even the smallest, whose reward is not greater by far than all that this world can possibly contain. The words are literally true. There is not in the whole of this world sufficient happiness, joy, or reward capable of being the reward of a mitzvah, even the smallest mitzvah one could possibly imagine. Okay, so ladies, now that we understand that mitzvahs are something that we can't measure and we can't even fathom, and we know that in this world we have the opportunity to do mitzvahs, which is why it says in Pirkei Avos, one hour of good deeds and repentance in this world is worth more than all of the life to, uh, and the world to come right? Which is saying that this is the world where we can acquire mitzvah, where we can continue to develop and God willing reap the benefits of mitzvah that we can only do while we're in this world, while we're in a physical body. And so we know just from Jewish tradition and from the teachings of our rabbis that all the pleasures of this world are not equal to one of the most simple mitzvot that are done in this world. And of course, this is the place of doing. This is, so to speak, whatever we make on Shabbos, that's what we're going to eat. This world is Olam, this, the six days of the week are like Olam Hazah. The seventh day is Olam Haba. We simulate this every single week when we stop before Shabbat 
And we basically eat whatever we made during those six days because that's what we live on on Shabbat. Oops, you didn't make another kugel, too bad, time's up. No no apple kugel this Shabbos, right? Oh, you didn't get out quick enough to go get your favorite chopped liver. Too bad, no chopped liver this Shabbos. So it's the same idea that we get a lifetime, olam hazeh, to prepare, to make kugels, to run after mitzvot. And when sunset comes and it's time to light the candles or when the sunset of our lives come and we know and we have to leave this world, we take with us everything that we prepare, everything that we made into the next world with us. And that's what we live on. Okay, thank you so much for staying with me. Any questions or comments? Hold on, I'll unmute. Um. Thank you so much. Always inspirational. Okay. Thanks, Arlene. Have a wonderful week, everybody. You too. Thank, Bye, you, thank, thank you. you for coming on. All the best. Thank All you. Too. Take care.